think that all of us have these very deep feelings of tenderness. You get stronger as you become more open. If I can be vulnerable, that'll help other people be vulnerable. And it doesn't work for me to be silent. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell you this story. This is the first time that I've told aloud. If I could have known that you and I were alike... I would have had so much more hope. Listening to other people's stories, you realize, wow, these people are all experiencing the same thing that we are. You are not the only one. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Tonight's topic is understanding and working with dreams, and my guest is Dr. Bob Childs. Bob is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's led dream groups for over 15 years, and he pays close attention to dreams in his work as a therapist and also in his own life as a person. Welcome to Safe Space, Bob. Hi, Dr. Ann. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back on the show. I'd like to start by asking you, how did you get interested in dreams? Well, actually, when I was in college, I just sort of spontaneously started remembering my dreams and, uh, you know, started writing them down. And uh, as I got older, I, I had turned out I had collected several dream books, which I had just sort of been writing my dreams down over a period of years. Um, and then at one point I decided to go into therapy, and when I went into therapy I chose a Jungian uh, analyst, somebody who was a practice in, uh, and trained in, in the teachings of Carl Jung. And, uh, and then, of course, from there my interest just deepened, and I really sort of started to realize that dreams are a unique gift to, uh, to each of us. It's really striking to me, though, that in college as a young man, you had the thought to write your dreams down in several books. I mean, did someone encourage you to do that, or was that your own instinct? Uh, I think I, I was a fairly reflective uh, adolescent, and uh, <laughs> you know, I majored in philosophy, actually, uh-huh. and uh, I just was interested in the inner, inner world, so uh, it came very, very naturally to me. And at that time, did you try to decipher uh, what those dreams were about, or were you just mostly recording them for their, on their own sake? I mean, I was interested in them. I, I would not say I understood them, <laughs> but um, they were fascinating. Of course, the images are very powerful, and um, one of the great things about dreams is that they're, you know, they're pictorial language. They're, they're pictures or images, but they often have these great emotional uh, charges to them or, or kind of a emotional expression to them, and so I was just fascinated by them. And But it was really in working with a therapist, with an, a union analyst, where, where I was able to actually develop a relationship to my own dreams. So I want to come back to that. I'm very interested in that. But before we go into more kind of experiential, I'd like to, you know, I know that Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud both placed a great deal of importance on the dream, but I understand they approached dreams in a slightly different way. And I wondered if you might just lay out some of that for me. Yeah, I mean, without being too didactic, really in a simple way, I think, um, Jung's take on dreams differ from... uh, Freud's in that he was not so much interested in a reductive approach to dreams, trying to reduce a dream to one particular meaning. Um, he was sort of interested in dreams as a vehicle of kind of opening things up, kind of going in the opposite direction. And he he really came to appreciate the nature of what he came to call the psyche, um, which he viewed as sort of the source of dreams, 
where the dreams come from. And he he felt that dreams have an autonomous course of development. They're actually outside of our ego's control, and um, they tend to be complementary to consciousness, to our awareness. They work with our awareness. They're trying to help us become more aware. And then, of course... And when you say, just to slow you down just for a sec. Yeah. So when you say complementary, you mean complementary spelled with an E, I presume, meaning they hold in balance that which is not being held in the conscious mind? Is that what exactly. you mean? That exactly. Is, that, is, that is such a fundamental thought right there, that the general functions of dreams, in fact, he felt was to, <clears throat> to try to restore our psychological balance by producing dream material, which for Jung was sort of trying to speak to the total equilibrium or the psychic equilibrium, as he would refer to it. So in other words, if, if in your day life you were only one way, kind of maybe in an extreme way, your dream life might try to balance that out by introducing, I don't know, parts of you that were the opposite, like parts of you that might be messy or mean or, you know, things that in your maybe orderly life you wouldn't, I, I, I don't know if that's an example that's a great, of what we're talking about. That's a very about. good good way to say it. I think that's that's a, one aspect of it. And, um, of course, another central theme, and this is kind of his idea of the autonomous nature of the psyche, is that um, when you follow dreams and you started to write them down and you, you sort of track series of dreams, it was also trying to take you into a process that was trying to restore equilibrium in that mm. sense. So it was complementary in that way. Okay, great. And then, so how did that differ from how Freud thought about it? Well, I think Freud, and I'm, I'm not going to speak for, for all Freudians or anything like that, but I mean, I, I think the central piece I would hold on to is like the reductive idea that you could reduce something to a particular meaning. Um, and, you know, and, and obviously he was focused more on, on ego development and, the, and the, you know, the process of um, dreams in relationship to that. Uh-huh. So it's so interesting to hear you say that because this is not something I know a great deal about, but I thought it was the opposite in a way that actually Jungians had a more one-to-one correspondence like, you know, teeth mean this or snake mean that, and that it was Freud who was much more open to the associations of the person and mm-hmm. less about what symbols always mean. Yeah, I, I think I think that's an accurate statement, but in, it's accurate in the sense that uh, from a, a Jungian point of view, the associations come from the ego, uh, generally. And they're not so much uh, coming from a part of us that we're not uh, aware of, let's say. And How that's interesting. Why Jung was sort of more interested in, in the nature of dreams from that perspective. Interesting. I see. So, so the Jungian take on the Freudian perspective would be, you're just working with the same old, same old, because it's just your ego generating more ideas about itself. Right, and and then and that's not trying to de- to demean the ego. It's just trying to say, without getting too far into a theoretical piece, but just yeah. that you know the self, Jung's idea of the self is 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 more autonomous than the ego. Interesting. Okay, so I want to come back. I want to come back to you now and keeping it sort of more close to our own experience. Sure. So here you are. You're, you're an unusual guy already in that you come to your first therapy appointment with books of dreams that you've already written down, yeah. which is every, every therapist's dream. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> your therapist was thrilled when he met you. Yeah. And, uh, and so what was the process by which you learned to enter a process with your own dreams? You know, walk me through so, in a way so that I might be able to do it too. How does well, it go? Well, perhaps, I mean... So part of my, my story had to do with my experience in my early years um, 
in the first three years of my life, I was in five different foster homes, and then I was adopted into a into a really wonderful family, as it turned out. But turned out those those early years were very uh, complicated and 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 uh, very uh, deep deeply impacted me and and uh, and sort of my my sense of development and struggle in my struggle to develop myself. And um, <clears throat> at one point, I became a violin maker. And interestingly enough, I've had these two threads ever since I was 22 years old is that I've I ended up majoring in philosophy and psychology, and then I became a woodworker and a violin maker. And I've had these two threads throughout my life, mm. and they, they remain true today, and I'm 57 today. For um, this particular dream, I had decided to search for my birth family. And uh, I was a, uh, it was a, just about a three or four weeks before meeting my birth family. And at the same time, I was having some struggles with the violin making and just wasn't sure that it was the right career for me. And then I had this dream where I was being led, actually it was in Switzerland. I was being led in Switzerland. Um, I came to the border, but the border guards wouldn't allow me into, into the country until I came to the customs house. And so uh, they brought me back, this one particular guard brought me back into the customs house. And he walked me back through a series of rooms till we got into a, a, a room that didn't have any windows at all. There was no light there. And um, he pointed to the center of the room, and in the center of the room was a table with a light shining on it, and he motioned for me to go over and pick it. Uh, he motioned that there was a violin on the, on the table, and he asked me to go pick it up. And when I did, I discovered that inlaid into the back of the violin was an image of a small boy crying. And, uh, and then... In the shadows somewhere was an image, a, a sense that my mother, my birth mother, was there, present. And, um, you know, and that dream is, is, um, was very pivotal to me in, in many, many different ways. For one thing, it, it, um, it wasn't clear because it was a neutral country, the idea of Switzerland, and I had really, I had only been in therapy for a couple of years. I hadn't decided to go back to school and become a psychologist. But I ended up, um, you know, sort of struck by, uh, you know, how an image could capture something so profound for me. And then also to realize that it really, all of a sudden, it broke through to my sense of awareness of why I was a violin maker. To, you know, to give voice to that kind of experience that was pre-verbal, if you would. To end specifically grief. Yes. Mm. It's a very poignant image. Yeah, and and did it did you know where I went listening to you was I couldn't help thinking about Zurich and Carl Jung's you know home and wondering if Switzerland was relevant in that way for you at all. Mm-hmm. But can I just tell you that um, it, it's only in this day right now talking to you that that thought came into my mind. Huh. You know, my therapist never interpreted the dream for me, and that that's sort of a more typical way a Jungian would work. Is it he didn't tell me what the dream meant at all? Yeah. But he more tried to help me try to um, follow the image. Yes, and so the image being the image of the violin with the boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so when you say follow the image, what do you mean? Well, so the first thing is that you might start to reflect a little bit on Switzerland and what are, what are some of your thoughts about Switzerland. One, one image I had is that it's, it's a safe country. You know, it's a it's a country that, even in World War II, was a, a place of, you know, for refugees, and it was um, a yes. place that wasn't um, sort of in the throes of war in particular. 
and um, it allowed me to get a sense of that I was entering into a different kind of of space that you know and so then toward moving it beyond the literal and into more of the imaginal or the, you know to the image he might have asked me something like well how do you know that in yourself you know how do you know that kind of a safe space in yourself and then we you know we would sort of play with that image if you would and then feeling that if you're you know if you approach something that feels very painful like a you know a small boy crying it's so much easier to do it when you're in a safe space. Yes. Um, you know, you could say your show is almost a, you know, an isomorph of that, right? That it's, it's a Switzerland show. on the air right now. Yeah. <laughs> that you're trying to create a, a place for people to look at things that are hard to look at. That's and, right. And uh, that dream, it, it really captures that image. And, and it's so, that, then you can tolerate the difficult emotion, That's which right. obviously as a child... Uh, and and even into young adulthood, it was very difficult for me to do that. Yes, yes, and so the violin, at some level, was was it was a way to connect with it, a way that you could connect. Yes, and again, m- you know, multiple levels of meaning, right? Because I'm a violin maker, so it was certainly about giving voice to that, but also it was about you know actually seeing an image and and like being able to really admit or to have a way of crystallizing an image of pain, if you would. Yes. And to be able to encounter that. And, you know, that's the idea of opening up the image. Yes. And, you know, I'm, I'm struck that you started this story by saying that you had, you were questioning whether being a violin maker was the right career for you. Um, So you, you have this dream in the midst of your question about is violin making right for me? And then I find myself wondering, whether your ambivalence about making violins had to do with how much pain you were giving voice to through music, if you know that you would understandably have ambivalence about even going there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, uh, you know that again, though, in the work that I did with the, with that dream, yeah, we we never talked about that in particular. But you know, following your thought is that. It became very. It became very clear to me that why I made violins, and there, and after that, there there wasn't any ambivalence about making violins. Oh, I see. That's interesting. Yeah. So I, it's clear that through my questions, I'm approaching it in a very different way right. than you did. Um, but you, but the way that you did was very very helpful to you. Yeah. And which it sounds like has more to do with again staying with the image and connecting with how you know that in yourself. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's sort of like. Um, Sort of, let's call it the the danger of interpretation is it's being done from the outside or it's being done, you know, from a school of thought or from uh, um, you know a a, a um, kind of a, let's call it a generic sense of meaning um, versus sort of a more internal process. And um, oftentimes, when you work with dreams, you wouldn't necessarily even need to get. Um, to a kind of a resolution necessarily, but you would just wait for the psyche to pick up the work and then feed you back sort of the next dream or the next piece of, of uh, you know, what was touched in, in, your, in your relationship to the, to the dream world, to the themes of the dream. Uh, maybe there's a very left brain part of me that wants to say, yeah, but I want to know the meaning. <laughs> <laughs> this is that reductive thing that you're talking about. Right. So what I hear you inviting me and anyone working with dreams into is 
to just stay with the image and wait for the next dream and sort of follow it as a process without needing to sort of concretize it as X means Y, kind of. Right, right. In other words, taking it out of the uh, the night world into the day world. <laughs> that might be a way a Jungian would say it. Uh, you do some of that, of course. It's not that it that um, that doesn't happen, but it's not necessarily the um, the sole focus of the work. And I was thinking one thing that might be helpful to your listeners is, you know, one of the ways that Jung sort of referred to dreams. He he thought of it, and he got this from actually from Aristotle, but. Um, the dreams had a kind of a, a, dyna- a, a let's call it a dramatic structure, where there would be a setting to the dream, there would be some thematic development, and then um, there would be some kind of reversal of circumstance or a turning point, and then there would be a fourth piece, which we which he called lysis, which kind of means to separate, and and that that there's when you look at enough dreams, you begin to recognize that there's this pattern, which. Um, yeah, I mean, Jung drew a lot of his work from the Greeks and, and how they thought about things. But, that was, I mean, one of his sources. But, um, so that idea of setting, development, uh, reversal of circumstance, and then a lysis, that was within a dream. And if you would kind of... Um, the lysis piece would be the kind of the, the, the way of, it, you know, making it part of you or trying to make, it, make yourself more... Um, to deepen your connection to the, the the intention of the dream, if you would. So for me, it would be in that dream, you know, trying to to sit with, to to experience, to feel the pain of a small boy crying, and then obviously, what would it be like to give voice to that? Right. And then, if you were working with that in therapy, you would go back to try to get a sense of where in the person's life that is taking place. And did the dream help you do that, Bob? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, that, that, that dream, I mean, this dream was 20 years ago, at least. Right, but you've uh, never forgotten it. It's still alive in me right now. I can feel that. You know, I'm struck um, at, at some, you know, neuroscientists who approach dreams as kind of random, uh, random neurological firings of neurons. Um, you know, and there's, I know there's some debate about whether dreams really have meaning, whether they matter. But listening to your story... You know, you've answered that question already. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to criticize, you know, say, let, let, since I'm more familiar with the Jungian world, it's easy to criticize, say, Jungian analysis or, or Jungian therapy. Obviously, the insurance companies, you know, it, the idea of doing long-term deep therapy is, is antithetical to, to the model, the medical model. At the same time, I think there's a sense, this quality of once you've experienced it, then it's a very experientially near, we might say, right? It's, once you've felt it and experienced it, it makes sense from, from that perspective. Right, and, and kind of academic arguments about it really don't hold any water for you. Right. I mean, exactly. after that dream you've just told us, you know, the debate is over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, from a, and from a Jungian point of view, the idea would be that, you know, that we carry things in our psyche that... Um, and this is another amazing thing about the psyche from our perspective is that um, we carry things along with us and that the psyche will feed them to us. You know, if, it could be if it was a um, painful experience, um, some parts of ourselves that are, you know, let's call it split off or, or not sort of um, felt as a kind of a sense of who we are, yet they're part of our experience that we carry along. And 
Um, there's many ways to talk about that, of course, but um, the idea is that the dreams will actually feed us or, or um, lead us to, to kind of to that center of ourselves, if you would. So they're and this amazing gift, really. Yeah, and, and it's, not a, it's not a straight road. It's, it's a, a circumnavigation. You know, uh, Jung was very influenced by alchemy, and alch- in the alchemical oven, as they used to say, there's, there's 64 compartments to it, and that, you know, the, uh, the work kind of travels through these compartments, and it's, it's, never, uh, it's never in a straight line. It's, it's always in a kind of a, let's call it a spiral or a deepening spiral of sorts. Right, and and the, and the managed care world doesn't like deepening spirals. <laughs> Not particularly. <laughs> they like twelve weeks of short cognitive sessions. Yeah, EBT. That's right. Evidence-based therapy. And so, given this, are there any consequences of not paying attention to your dreams? You know, I mean, I I think it's it's obvious that people function quite well without without paying attention to their dreams. Um, you know, from from my perspective, um, you know, I've I've. I can help. Oh, oftentimes people will come to see me in therapy and they might say they don't dream or um, they might want to learn how to dream but have difficulty remembering. And I can really, I think I can help people. There's ways that you can, you can learn how to do it. And a lot of it involves very simple things like just slowing, slowing it down when you get up in the morning, not just popping out of bed, but just laying there for a minute or two and, you know, not filling your mind with, you know, the, your, your immediate activities, but just waiting and then... Um, you know, one of the the jokes that I heard one time in one of my training in training was that you know, dreams hide in the banal or, or you know the kind of the simple, and you might just have a simple image and it's like a thread, and then when you learn how to kind of pull the thread down, ultimately with a little practice you start pulling down whole stories, and as you pull down the whole stories, and you begin to write them down or find a way of remembering them, um, your mind begins to uh, to train itself. Yes, for instance, I'll, uh, frequently people will say to me, you know, I don't remember my dream, but I'll suddenly in the middle of the day have the feeling in my body of the dream. Or yes. I'll just get this emotional sense of the dream, but I can't go any further. So that's like the tip of the thread. How would you, what, what are some ways that you can help someone, as you put it, sort of pull the thread down to get back to the story? Yeah, well, I mean, a, a very sort of pragmatic thing is to just, Get a notebook, and, and I always tell people, you know, don't have a, a it's a note, it's not a journal notebook, it's just a, a notebook for dreams alone, so the dreams have a place to come to. And you keep it by your bed and with a pen, and then you have to do the work of just saying, oh, well, I'll, I'll remember, I'll write that dream down later, or you just have to have develop a practice of, uh, you know, disciplining yourself to actually write the images down. And then you try not to interpret the dream as you write it down, you just, just focus on the image. And, um, you know, that in itself is, is, is hard to do, and not try to interpret your own dreams right away. Right, and, and your prohibition on that is because that might sort of send away the image? I mean, right, you're just trying to be as receptive and welcoming yeah. as possible. Right, and it's also the idea that you might know the answer. You know, the, probably the part of you that would know the answer is, is probably the, the part of you to, um, you know, that, let's say, doesn't want to change in particular or, you know. Yes. Doesn't want this dream to really affect me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to be, defend myself from this dream. Yeah, right. That's, a, that's the easiest way to, to say it, really. Yes. I mean, in, in that line, I also think there are probably times when people are afraid of, of the dream. The dream is disturbing in some way. It feels weird. They're afraid that it's about, what does it say about them? And um, 
How can you help people with that fear so that they can really benefit, receive? Yeah, well, one of the ways we could talk about that is, is you know, like let's say a nightmare, for instance. Um, one of the ways to think about a nightmare or something, a dream that makes you afraid is that it's often we experience that as a nightmare because it's extremely far from our sense of ourselves. And uh, when you begin to think about it from that perspective, and to move it, I mean, when you when you work in this way, in the Jungian way, you're kind of moving away from the literal. So, you know, there may be murder and mayhem in your dream, but when you realize it's not literal, the reason you're afraid of it is because you think it's literal most of the time. Um, and it's some reflection of, you know, I'm a, I'm a bad person because I imagined this thought. But when you realize that the psyche itself works in a different kind of way, where, um, you know, there's there's no limits to the kind of the imagery. And I think that's one of the reasons that Jung was really drawn to, uh, to the Greek world because uh, kind of the underworld images of, of, uh, in, the, in the Greek sort of um, approach, uh, there was a sense of, you know, that in the underground, you know, things happen there that sometimes are, are, um, are difficult, but it's sort of as it's part of the journey is to go into the difficult world, into, into Hades, into the underworld. And somehow, you know, we have a very literal culture, I think, in some ways, the idea of not taking it literally, working with it as a symbol, yeah. and kind of just entering into a relationship of curiosity with that symbol about what it might mean. That, that's, it is a, it's a countercultural choice, it sounds to me. Yeah, that's right. It's, and it, it is about, I mean, Jung really would emphasize kind of the spontaneous image-making of the soul. And when, when you're, like, when you're in a very reductive world or, you know, you're flooded with advertising images or, you know, you're, um, you know, the world becomes very literal, then it, it, it you know, you, the world becomes dead in a certain way, or you know, maybe we could almost we could take a leap and say that's a big aspect of depression. In fact, that the world is, has died in some way, and that part of the way that you can come back to life, or what the world can come back to life, is through your psyche, is through the spontaneous image making, mm. and and what Jung come, came to call the imaginal world. Fascinating, the power of the image to bring life. Yeah. And then, and then, as you said, to cultivate a sense of curiosity about that, and then ultimately to develop a relationship to to this world. I mean, that's what I'm hearing in some ways. I think the thing I'm learning from you the most tonight is this idea that rather than looking directly for meaning, and, and especially, you know, like a lesson that I can apply to my life right now, you know, like this, all these books about the seven secrets to X, you know. Right. Instead, it sounds like really you are proposing an in, uh, a relationship with the image, one that lasts over time, that might have more than one visit through different dreams. Yes, and, and of course it doesn't just have to be in dreams. It could be through painting or, or different art. But, I mean, from a Jungian perspective, the idea is that the kind of the road or the movement of the imaginal world is through metaphor and symbol. And... A kind of an easy way to capture that is the, the kind of the etymology of the word symbol. It comes from this idea of a broken plate, and that one person would keep half the plate in its broken form, and the other half refers to what isn't there. And that's why kind of, you know, the idea of a symbolic meaning is that you're you're trying to develop a relationship to kind of the layers of of meaning or, or image that is, is um, in the symbol. That's not just, it's not just obvious. 
I see. You mean the so the what's not there is the part that isn't quite obvious, but yes. that but is implied by the symbol. If you can stay that's with right. It. That's why it's yeah. not completely reducible. Right. You don't want we to kill are, the image. We're gonna. We have to stop, Bob. I, there's, this is, feels like a conversation to be continued. I want to thank you so much for being my guest, and I want to acknowledge that you were the first interview that I had on Safe Space, and that you've had a wonderful role in helping me get the show started. So thank you so much, Bob. And I, I, I admire your work very much. So keep up the good work. Thank you. My thanks tonight, too, to Jen Hodgson for inspiring this dream series as a whole and to Maurice Lennon for the music. If you'd like to contact me uh, for any further suggestions or ideas, please do so by emailing me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com.